Today is the third message in our four-week preaching series entitled Journey to Easter. It's a short four-week series with stops outside Samaria in Bethany and the final two located in Jerusalem. Now at each of these stops, Jesus is revealing important truth to us about the significance of Easter. Our first stop took place at the border of Samaria. It was there that Jesus reminded us that it is the marginalized, the rejected, the broken, the sick, the helpless that he came to redeem. And he also reminded us that God can do miraculous things even though we are in a place we never intended to be on a road we never set out to be on. Our second stop took place in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. It was here that we were reminded that Jesus weeps along with those who are mourning, even though he has authority over life and death. Today, we will be located just outside the gates of the great city of Jerusalem on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. These days, you likely find yourself spending a great deal of time waiting waiting for the latest updates and direction from those in authority about what's expected of you next, waiting for the results of a test to see if you're infected with the virus, waiting for your online grocery order, pickup delivery or delivery that was submitted so long ago that you don't even remember what's in it, waiting to see your family again or waiting to be free from seeing your family every minute of every day, waiting for the 14 days to pass since your last human contact to make sure you're healthy, waiting to worship together, waiting to get back to your workplace, waiting to eat food that you didn't make, waiting to send your kids back to daycare or school or their private lessons, waiting for the numbers to start decreasing and the threat to lift. The Jewish people in Jesus' day understood what it meant to wait. They had waited for generations for the long-expected Messiah, the King of Israel, to arrive and redeem Israel. Palm Sunday highlights the moment of celebration of the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, King of Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, as we consider our scripture today, we will see that there were many present on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem as king that believed that he was indeed the long-awaited king, the Messiah of Israel. But there were many others that failed to see the significance of this moment. Some even rejected Jesus because they had a distorted expectation of what the arrival of the king of the Jews should look like. As we celebrate Palm Sunday today, we are reminded that Jesus is the king of kings and the savior of all creation. But Palm Sunday also reminds us to look forward as we wait for the second coming of the King of Kings and the Savior of all creation. If we believe that Jesus is the King of Kings and that Jesus is the Savior of all creation, 
it should cause us to look forward to and wait for his second coming with great anticipation. Our scripture today is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 38. And this is what it says. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on their colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The first thing I want us to see today is the king's arrival. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. He knows that rejection, death are waiting for him there. His journey began in Luke 9, verse 51, which we saw in the first week of our series, that says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The destination is Jerusalem, the objective to die for the sins of mankind. To understand the significance of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem to die as king, we need to go back to the announcement of his birth in Luke chapters 1 and 2. The angel Gabriel told Mary that he would be given the throne of David. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, prophesied long before that he, the Messiah, Jesus, would be the salvation coming from the house of David. Jesus is the promised future king of Israel in the line of David. The Messiah had come. The last days had arrived. Now, it's interesting that after Luke chapter 2, Luke records nothing more about the kingship of Jesus until Luke 18. When Jesus is passing by Jericho just prior to arriving in Jerusalem and a blind beggar called out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In this moment, the kingship theme is now reintroduced back into the gospel of Luke. Up until now, Luke has portrayed Jesus as an an anointed prophet. But now he brings the theme of king back into the story, just as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and die as the king of the Jews. Jesus, we're told, is accompanied by a crowd. Luke refers to them as disciples or followers of Jesus. As they near the city, they're joined with crowds that are coming out from the city to meet them. 
Now, it would be easy for us to just see this passage as another historical detail in the life of Jesus. But there is so much more that is going on in this story. And we may miss it, but I want us to know that it is certain that those who were present on that day at that time did not miss what was going on. In fact, some of them were upset about it and even opposed it. We can't forget that the crowd, the disciples, are Jews. They know the prophecies. They know the scriptures. They are a part of a group that are longing for the Messiah to come. Jesus, we're told, sent the disciples ahead to get a colt of a donkey for his entry into Jerusalem. Jesus told them to tell the colt's owner that the Lord needs it. We should notice that Jesus didn't request a donkey. He didn't request a horse. He was specific. He requested a colt, the foal of a donkey, one that had never been ridden before. Immediately, the minds of those of the people who were present would go to Zechariah 9, verse 9. A messianic prophecy that stated that when the Messiah, the king, comes, he will come riding on a donkey, a colt of a donkey. Why now? Why here? It's been a long journey. Is he finally so tired that he needs to ride? No. He's making a huge declaration. He's declaring with this request that I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the king that was prophesied. He is going to ride into the city with all the image of a king. Now, we often call this event the triumphal entry. But in reality, this entry was more of an insult than triumphant. Jesus' pending arrival in Jerusalem was not met with the normal fanfare reserved for royalty. It was not announced with trumpets or celebration. Instead of trumpets and fanfare, Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem as king was announced by a blind beggar and revealed only to the donkey owners. This is fitting in the context of the bigger story of Jesus' life. When he was born as king, those invited to witness it were the lowly shepherds. The second thing I want us to see is the king's praise. Jesus is now entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. It doesn't say that Jesus mounted the cult of his own initiative. It says that the crowd put him on the cult. This was common in the days of the kings of Israel. In 1 Kings 1.32, David decided that Solomon's time had come to take his place as king. David requested that they bring him his donkey, and he placed Solomon on it and paraded him through the city streets. Israeli kings rode donkeys in times of peace, only horses in times of war. As a result, crowds gathered with rejoicing and celebration. Some others who were not present heard the noise and inquired about, what is this that's going on? And they were told that David had made Solomon his son, the king. The crowd outside Jerusalem, recognizing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, king of the Jews, place him on a cult, as David did with Solomon. Then they spread their cloaks on the ground. 
this act too had significant symbolism and biblical reference. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, Jehu revealed to his officers that God had made him king. Their immediate response was to take off their cloaks, to lay them on the ground before him to walk on. Laying your cloak on the ground was a symbol of your submission to their authority. Because this crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of the Jews, they took their cloaks off and laid them on the ground as a symbol of submission. When they neared the place where the road went down the Mount of Olives, all of a sudden loud praise erupted. Why now? Why here? Once again, we need to remember that they are Jews who are familiar with the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel wrote about the departure of the glory of God from Israel that took place at the Mount of Olives. But the prophet Ezekiel also prophesied that the glory of God would one day return to Israel with the Messiah and it would take place also from the Mount of Olives in the east. With everything that was happening at this moment, the crowd believed that the glory of Israel had returned, just as Ezekiel had prophesied about so long ago. They began quoting the Messianic Psalm found in Psalm 118, 25 to 27. Now it's important for us to note that in Luke's account of this, he doesn't use the actual words, Hosanna, even though the other gospel writers do use the word Hosanna. Psalm 118 begins with the words, Lord, save us. The words, Lord, save us, mean Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord, save us. It's a cry for help for God to come and save his people. The crowd were praising God because they knew that God had answered that prayer and the king, the Messiah, had come to deliver them. Thirdly and finally, we see the king's rejection. As the crowds escorted Jesus towards Jerusalem, they encountered the Pharisees and other religious leaders. Instead of welcoming Jesus as their king, they rejected Jesus and his followers. They observed the response of the crowd. They knew what the crowd believed about Jesus, and they wanted it to stop. They want Jesus to be rejected instead. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he's the king of Israel. And they wanted Jesus to tell the crowd to stop worshiping, stop celebrating, and clear up this misconception. But Jesus replied, if I tell them to stop their praise, the very stones on the ground will cry out in praise. Jesus said, praise must take place now. As Jesus came near to Jerusalem, the celebration quickly turned to weeping. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wanted to bring peace to Jerusalem. He wanted to be the hope of Israel. He wanted to be accepted and embraced by its people. But instead, he was rejected And the result of their rejection would be that they would endure future destruction and devastation. 
Jesus then referenced the future destruction of the temple itself and Jerusalem as a city by Rome, which we know took place a while later in 70 AD. And this happened because they did not accept and recognize Jesus as the king. The day of celebration had turned to mourning. There are three things that I would like to consider today as we bring this message to conclusion. The first, a kingdom. A kingdom. As we read, read Luke's account of the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus was born a king. He died a king. He ascended into heaven after the resurrection with the promise that he would return. Therefore, he is also the coming king. Every king has a kingdom. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus referenced the kingdom of God more than 80 times. He taught about it. He called for a radical commitment to it. He declared that because he had come, the kingdom of God was near. It had arrived. Now, there are a few differing opinions on the kingdom of God. Some believe that the kingdom of God's here now in its fullness. Some believe that the kingdom of God was promised by Jesus, but would not come until the end when Jesus returns. Some believe if they do the right things right now, they can make the kingdom come. Others believe that the kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus came and will be fully consummated when he comes back. And we talked about that last week, the already, but not yet. Here in part, but not in its fullness That's the position of our particular faith tradition. Ed Stitzer, in his book, Subversive Kingdom, provides what I think is an excellent illustration to understand the already but not yet. He talks about how in June 1944, during World War II, the Allies stormed the beaches in Normandy in what we refer to as D-Day. Their victory on D-Day broke the back of the enemy and began the liberation of German-occupied France. It was the beginning of the end. Victory was inaugurated on that day. Months later, almost a year, May 1945, the war officially ended on what is known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, as the enemy unconditionally surrendered. Victory was inaugurated on D-Day and consummated on VE Day about a year later. It's interesting that more people died in between these two dates than during any other period during the war. Jesus' first coming inaugurated the kingdom. Jesus' second coming will consummate the kingdom. The kingdom is breaking in on us and will be fully realized when Jesus returns. Second thing I want us to see is a kingdom people. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he focused on two aspects, the present and the future. In the future, when he returns again, when the kingdom of God is consummated, sin will be destroyed. The enemy will be destroyed. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. He will wipe all the tears from our eyes. Jesus will reign as king, and all will acknowledge him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In the present, between now and the time that he returns, we have been invited to live kingdom life, to orient our lives, how we live around kingdom values, kingdom principles, kingdom priorities. We enter kingdom life through repentance, which literally means to walk a new road. The kingdom of God is a new road. It is totally countercultural to the world's values, the world's priorities, the world's principles. And is accessible, the kingdom of God is accessible only through salvation in Jesus Christ. We're faced with the same choice today as those who were there on the road to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. We can recognize and declare that Jesus is the king of our lives and respond to him. Or we can be like the religious leaders and reject him as king of our lives. The evidence of which we have chosen is in how we live our lives. In the kingdom of God, the way we treat others with love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, patience, kindness, is an indication that Jesus is king in our lives. In the kingdom of God, our priorities, what matters most to us, what dominates us, our our desires, our attention, our time, our spending, what we value most is an indication that Jesus is king in our lives. In the kingdom of God, our emphasis on the importance of prayer, community with fellow believers, confession of our sins, repentance, the priority given to the mission of making disciples is an indication that Jesus is king in our lives. When we become kingdom people, we approach our jobs different. We interact with our families different. We do marriage different. Our friendships are different. The value we place on church community is different. The importance we place on ourselves is different. How we give our resources and spend our resources is different. When we become kingdom people, we pray the Lord's Prayer with sincerity when we say, your kingdom come. That there's a longing for the reality of it in our lives today and looking forward to the fullness of it when Jesus returns. In the time between the first and second coming of Jesus, we live in the kingdom of God as children of the king, surrendering our lives to his lordship. And finally today, a coming king. The second coming of Jesus is a central belief within Christianity. Many would argue that since the birth of the Pentecostal movement at the turn of the 20th century, the second coming of Jesus has been the central driving force. We've been passionately evangelistic and missions-focused because we believe that Jesus is coming soon and people need to be saved before he comes. We place a high emphasis on healing and miracles because we believe that these are a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness when Jesus comes. We place a high value on spirit baptism because we believe it is a necessary power for mission, 
to be his witnesses so people will be saved before Jesus comes. I would like to suggest today that it is critically important for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus to live our lives with an anticipation of the return of Jesus. That would include rejecting the values of our culture, being kingdom-focused, and reaching a lost world by being a disciple and spending our lives discipling others, seeking to be spirit-empowered so that we can live out the mission of Jesus. Jesus' kingship was rejected by many because it reflected different values and goals than those of other kings. It It reflected different values and goals than what people expected and wanted of him. Many Jewish people, including many of their religious leadership, could not get their heads around Jesus being the Messiah because he was so different than what they expected. From the time of his birth, it was evidence that Jesus would be taking a different, unusual path. His ministry saw an elevation of those who were poor and sick, the outcast, the rejected, those who lacked value, and a bringing down of those who viewed themselves as superior. His focus was not on the rich, the landowners, the powerful. It was on the ordinary person who had faith to put their trust in him. His disciples were not the well-educated, connected, and intelligent ones. They were fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, zealots, women, which was a really big deal in this culture at this time for women to be elevated into such priority positions. The Bible says it is for those who look for him that he will return not because they're celebrities, not because they're rich, not because they're educated, not because they hold powerful positions, not because they're popular, but because they simply and faithfully live their lives with his return in view. Looking for it, longing for it, living in a way that reflects his kingdom. The great gathering of the multitudes that the book of Revelation talks about when Jesus returns is going to include many of those that we might least expect to be invited. And folks, I believe that that should give us great hope because we are flawed and we are broken and we are sinful at times and we struggle and most of us are not spectacular and none of us are deserving, yet we get to be a part of his reign, of his kingdom, both now and forevermore. The second coming of Jesus must remain a central truth in our relationship with him. Easter reminds us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Savior of all creation. Easter reminds us that since Jesus is the King of kings and the Savior of all creation, we should look forward to his second coming with great anticipation, waiting, waiting for the King to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are before you on this Palm Sunday, we thank you that Jesus is the King of kings, 
the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He is the Savior of all creation. And we are so grateful that we can celebrate who he is today. We are grateful on this great Palm Sunday that we can be reminded that the King has come and we can be reminded that the King is coming again. Lord, I pray for all those who are listening today. Lord, as we are wading through so many things right now, I pray that you would help us to remain focused on that which we are waiting for the most, that which is the most important, which is your second coming. And I pray on this Palm Sunday that that would bring peace and comfort to those who are listening. I pray if there are those today who, who don't know you as Lord and Savior, who, who are not looking for you as a priority in their lives, I pray that today that they would make the choice to make you Lord and Savior. And for those who are listening today, that Father have made you Lord and Savior, may they find peace in the midst of the turmoil and the panic that we are living in in this present day. And I pray that you would remind us that a better day is coming. There is hope, and you are with us. And Lord, that you're going to help us through these difficult and challenging times, and that you will come again. And so, Father, I pray your blessing on each of us as we consider inviting the King into our own lives, inviting the King into our own families, Lord, we invite you in. We welcome you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.